Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning. If you're visiting, we're thrilled that you're here as well. I hope you feel warmly welcomed. I want to encourage you to... Uh, uh, if you're visiting, to stop by our information table and fill out a connection card and pick up a gift bag before you leave. Uh, we've been uh, in a series this Christmas season where I am teaching through the, the popular Christmas carols. Uh, it's a series called Carols for the King. And um, I actually did kind of part one of this series last year, uh, but again, because of the Christmas season only being about four to five weeks, I only got through four to five carols. And so this year I'm finishing it up, and um, uh, as I'm going through the carols, I'm looking for the particular songs that teach biblical truth about the Lord. And I'm looking at the lyrics, and then going to the scriptures to see where the lyrics came from in the scriptures, and trying to connect the dots for us. And so uh, today's uh, message is on the popular carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you forgot your Bible uh, or need to borrow one, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We want you to have a copy of the Word in front of you so you can follow along. I also want to encourage you to take out the sermon note insert that's in the worship folder you received when you came in today. There are many benefits to taking notes during um, the message. First of all, you'll remember more. Uh, Secondly, it shows you there's an end to the message coming eventually. And uh, thirdly, it does help the message go faster. So uh, I want to encourage you to follow along and and, and take notes. Um, Our theme verse for this series has been 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. If you don't have an underline in your Bible yet, I want to encourage you to do so. It it really just sort of uh, encapsulates or summarizes in one sentence sort of the the Christmas story. Uh, Let's read it out loud together. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The wise old apostle John is saying that one of the purposes for sending, for God sending his son is so that we might have life through him. I think there's a dual meaning in this verse. Uh, The first, I think it means that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation Uh, can receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness for their sins. I also think there's a second meaning in this verse, uh, so that we might live through him, and that is that it means anyone who has a relationship with the Son has the life of the Son living within them by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And So my fear, though, is that the extraordinary truths of the gospel that come forth in the Christmas story might become ordinary to all of us. That they might no longer grip us because, well, you know, I've heard it before. It's, it's nothing new. Yeah, I grew up in church. or you know, I've heard Christmas sermons for several years straight. But, but uh, here's why it's a fear of mine for all of us is that allowing Truth to become familiar allows it to become stale 
And it's not only dangerous for our soul, but it's also one way to have a stale Christmas season. This is why you've been hearing me say this month throughout this series that one of the secrets to making each Christmas season special is is learning the special meaning behind the songs of the season. There's a reason they were written. There's there's a message behind every song, within every song, excuse me, and there's there's a story behind every author and what they went through to write these songs. They have something to say. And so with that, uh, we're going to unwrap today the story behind O Come, All Ye Faithful. The story for this carol begins in the mid-1700s when an English Catholic priest named John Wade penned the lyrics to this new hymn. This was another new radical contemporary worship song in the mid-1700s. Like many songs from this period, O Come, All Ye Faithful was originally written in Latin, and it was given the title, Adeste Fideles. It's Latin for, it literally means, be present or near, ye faithful. Surprisingly, Wade was not given credit for writing the song for quite some time. Uh, Even though it was published, the first couple times it was published, he didn't get the writing credit for it. This allowed a handful of legends to take seed of other people or writing it or maybe how the song came together. Um, Even when uh, Anglican minister Frederick Oakley translated it from Latin to English in 1841 so that his congregation could sing it, um, Wade's identity was still a mystery. That was about a hundred years after the song had been written. Oh, Come All Ye Faithful gained enormous popularity here in the United States in the early 20th century with the dawn of the radio era. Now, for those of you that weren't around back then, um, the radio era, uh, during the radio era, about the first four decades of the 20th century, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, I didn't know this, this was interesting, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful made it to the top 10 three times in those four decades. It was one of the most popular or the most popular Christmas carol played on the radio until Bing Crosby released his album, White Christmas. Man, Bing, why'd you have to mess things up? But uh, Bing, interestingly, one of the songs that he had on his album, White Christmas, was O Come, All Ye Faithful. And so it was around World War II that John Wade's true identity was discovered, and he finally was given the long overdue credit that he deserved. John Wade's story is a reminder, I think, that even if you don't receive credit for something you created or completed, God knows that you did it, and he will see that you get handsomely rewarded. And so, as I've said before, within every song is a message, and behind every author is a story. There are a couple of distinctives about this carol that are worth mentioning. Like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we talked about last week, O Come, All Ye Faithful was written by a Catholic priest who knew Latin and had theological training. But unlike O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, O Come, All Ye Faithful, uses lyrics that were simple enough for the common layman to understand. And... Like O Come, O Come Emmanuel, O Come All Ye Faithful is a carol of invitation. Except instead of inviting the long-awaited Messiah to come and be present with his people, 
This carol invites God's people to come bless the long-awaited Messiah with their worship. And so the chorus invites us, oh come, come, let us adore him. Worship is the adoration and celebration of an awesome God. It's adoring who he is and celebrating what he has done. O come all ye faithful, invites us to sing, to adore, and to remain faithful to the one who has always been faithful to us. And so with that, if you would look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 to 16. And we're going to extrapolate some truths from the carol that come from the scriptures as well. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of a knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Here's the first truth that the carol, O come, all you faithful reveals about the Christmas story, and it's this. Jesus' birth invites, us, invites believers to rejoice in their triumph. Jesus' birth invites believers to rejoice in their triumph. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here for 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and what's going on so that we can understand what Paul's talking about. In the early chapters of 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul was facing a handful of stressful challenges that left him feeling defeated. His credibility as a leader was being questioned by the Corinthians. Um, His last visit to Corinth did not go well. He talks about that in chapter two, verses one through four. Uh, A leader in the Corinthian church uh, needed to be disciplined. He talks about that in verses five through 11. And he was worried about his ministry partner, Titus, who did not show up in Troas where they were supposed to meet. So, Turos, by the way, was a Roman colony that um, is in Western Asia on the Aegean Sea that was ripe for the gospel. Titus was supposed to be carrying a, um, a ministry, off- an offering that had been gathered from the various church plants that Paul wanted to take back to the church in Jerusalem that was struggling financially. And so when Titus didn't show up for their scheduled meeting in Troas, this Roman colony, Paul didn't know you know, has he been robbed by bandits? Um, did he decide to leave the ministry and take the money? Did, has he been killed? Or run into some other problem? He, he doesn't know. So keep in mind, they didn't have mobile phones back then. I mean, they didn't even have the Pony Express, right? So, so he doesn't have a way to contact Titus and to find out where he is. And thus, if you looked at the, look at your Bible, it says in verse 13, Paul says, my spirit was not at rest. He was a little uneasy. He was worried about Titus, and he was worried about the money that they had been gathering for this offering, this this mission offering for the church in Jerusalem. And it made it even more challenging is that 
God had opened a door for Paul to preach in Troas, uh, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a colony that was very ripe and open to the gospel. You see that in verse 12? He says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Paul wanted to go in and preach in that city, but his heart was torn because he's like, oh, but I gotta find Titus. And so he leaves Troas, and he goes on to Macedonia looking for Titus. Paul and Titus did end up reconnecting, and everything turned out to be fine, but Paul could have remained stressed out and anxious, but instead he chose to take an eternal perspective, and that's what he does in verse 14. Look at your Bible again with me. He says, Christ leads us in triumphal procession. The apostle is using a victory parade awarded to a conquering Roman general as a word picture here. That's what he's talking about. It was called a Roman triumph. It resembled the ticker tape parades that we see in our culture today for Super Bowl champions. A Roman triumph was given to any Roman general who won a battle on foreign soil, killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers, acquired new territory for the empire, and then he was given a parade, a processional parade back in Rome to celebrate his victory. The winning general would ride through the city of Rome on a golden chariot, surrounded by his officers, followed by the spoils he collected in his victory and the enemy soldiers that he captured. The parade would follow a certain route through the city to the Colosseum or another stadium where the enemy prisoners would then be forced to fight to the death against wild beasts while 50 to 60,000 Romans watched and were entertained. So why was Paul mentioning this? Well, Paul is saying that like a victorious general, Jesus Christ conquered the enemies of sin, Satan, and death by giving up his own life on the cross and then resurrecting himself three days later. Christ's conquest captured lost souls who are no longer his enemy, but rather get to be his soldiers, following him in his own victory parade. So thus, that's why he says Christ leads us in triumphal procession. The Corinthians would have known what Paul was talking about there. He's comparing Jesus to a conquester, excuse me, a conquering victorious general who has a huge following behind him of people that he captured. The other thing that took place in a Roman triumph was the burning of incense. This incense meant something totally different to the two types of men that were in the parade. To the Roman soldiers who were a part of the entourage for that victorious general, the incense represented victory, honor, and life. The smell triggered memories of, oh man, we get to do another parade. So glad I'm with this general. We're just, we're just taking countries and taking names and capturing people and all this. And oh, I can't wait to smell those incense again. But the other type of man that smelled the incense were the prisoners 
they did not like the smell of the incense because the incense represented defeat and dishonor and death. And so Paul uses the tradition from the Roman processional parade to make a powerful point about what triumph looks like for the sold-out Christ follower. First, he says, and here's letter A on your outline, to those open to the gospel, we smell good. We smell good. He says in verse 16, uh, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. He means that those who are open to the gospel but not yet saved will be drawn to genuine believers. Like someone who smells frosted sugar cookies baking in the oven or real hot cocoa on the stove. Some unbelievers will find the aroma of your faith so enticing they'll want to know more about why you act the way you do. There's an implication, though, here. You see, if, if no one likes you because of your faith in Christ, then there's something wrong with your witness. Because the scriptures teach that the message of the gospel may be offensive to some, but the messenger should never be offensive. Now, here's the next thing that Paul says about triumph. Letter B. To those who are closed to the gospel, we smell bad. You know, here's just a little side note. This is not in the manuscript. A little commercial here while you jot that down. The first time I ever taught this passage was in a Sunday school class probably 20 years ago. I desperately needed a title for this passage, so I called it Stink for Jesus. <laughs> I tried really bad, really hard to find my notes from that Sunday school lesson 20 years ago. I couldn't find it on my computer, but I still remember that title. Titles are always hard for me, but that was, that was one of my better ones. I think. So just stink for Jesus, man. So here's letter B. To those closed to the gospel, we smell bad. So Paul says in verse 16, uh, we, we are a fragrance from death to death. He means that those who are closed to the gospel because they've rejected Christ, they will be repulsed by your faith. Like someone who smells the pungent scent of a dead corpse or sour milk or rotten eggs. Some unbelievers will find the aroma of your faith offensive and refuse to hear you talk about it. Now, there's an implication here as well. If everyone likes you because of your faith in Christ, then there's something wrong with your holiness. Because the scriptures are also clear that those who genuinely live for Christ will experience the rejection that he did. Jesus said to his disciples during his earthly ministry in John chapter 15, the world will hate you because of me. So, so the goal isn't to be hated by everyone in the world, nor is the goal to be liked by everyone in the world. What Paul's saying is, it all depends on the condition of the unbeliever's heart. If God's working on their heart and wooing them to faith in Christ, they're going to be attracted to you. But if their heart is hard and you're doing your job to, to live for the Lord to be true about your faith and speak the truth in love, there's some people that are going to be mad at you no matter what. And you can't do anything about it. So, the first truth 
that Paul tells us, excuse me, that the carol tells us, and it comes right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, is that Jesus' birth invites believers to rejoice in their triumph. Next, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 66. The next passage we're going to look at is in the Psalms. Psalm 66. book of Psalms is right after Job, but before Proverbs. So if you get, a good, get the Proverbs, hang a left. Psalm 66, while you're turning there, here's the second truth that O Come All Ye Faithful tells us about the Christmas story. Number two in your outline is this, Jesus' birth invites believers to sing in celebration. Jesus' birth invites believers to sing in celebration. John Wade wrote, sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above. For Wade, the Christmas story was a good enough reason to praise the Lord in worship. However, as I said earlier, I fear the extraordinary Christmas story has become so ordinary for many 21st century evangelicals that it no longer grips them. They're no longer wowed by it because they're so familiar with it. Well, Psalm 66 provides some additional inspiration for our worship. Look, if you would, at verses 1 through 4, the psalmist writes, Shout for joy to God, all the earth, and sing the glory of his name, and give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now, notice, first of all, the energy and enthusiasm in the punctuation and the verb choices the psalmist uses. He doesn't say, whisper for joy to God. He doesn't say, mumble for joy to God. No, the psalmist obviously says, hey, give some glorious praise, verse 2, to the Lord. Now, obviously, my glorious praise is going to look a little different than yours based on our personality type. However, I think what the psalmist is making clear is that if you love the Lord, there should be some signs of life when you're worshiping. There ought to be a little movement happening. It doesn't need to be... You don't have to have both hands up. One hand's good. If you can't get them both up there or one up there, just get them up a little bit. Um, there's a famous Tim Hawkins video that is on YouTube. Just, just go to YouTube and punch that in, Tim Hawkins' worship postures. And uh, he, he makes some funny jokes about how we worship. But, but the point is, is that there ought to be a sign that you're moving and engaged in singing and worshiping. Secondly, notice please that the rest of God's creation is already worshiping. Do you see that? He says in verse 4, all the earth worships you. They sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So, so the rest of God's creation is praising the Lord already. He seems to imply, then, why, why aren't you 
They know that they should. The, all the fish and the animals and the sea and the mountains, they, they sing. They're worshiping the Lord. In fact, in my years of studying the scriptures, I have always found it fascinating that people are the only part of God's creation that have to be told to worship him. Even though we already should be. And we know we should. But the rest of God's creation automatically does it. Next, the psalmist lists a couple of reasons or prompters on why we should praise the Lord. Look at uh, verses five and six. Oh, here's another invitation word. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. And there did we rejoice in him. This is probably a reference to when the Lord set the Israelites free from Egypt and parted the Red Sea so they could escape the Egyptian army. Now, I realize most of us were not around when that happened. I said most of us. Um, so, so it might be hard for us to relate to what that was like. You know, looking at ocean in front of you, Egyptian army behind you, going, where do we go? Can't go up, can't go down. We're trapped. But here, let me just ask you a couple questions that might help you relate to what the psalmist is saying. Have you ever found yourself in a messy situation in which you needed the Lord to get you out? I mean, it could have been a mess that you made, or maybe it's a mess that someone else made for you. But you felt trapped, you needed the Lord to come through, my guess is that all of us could probably think of a situation in our lives where we needed the Lord to come through and get us out of a messy situation, and he did. And so the psalmist is saying, well, you can praise the Lord for that. So if you're having a hard time praising him for the birth of Christ in Christmas time, well, then think about that one time when you were in a messy situation, you were trapped, you couldn't get yourself out of it, and you needed the Lord to come through, and the Lord did. And let that inspire your praise. Next, look at verses 8 and 9. He says, bless, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Here's another question for you. Has the Lord ever kept your soul amongst the living? I think that phrase means to extend your life. So has the Lord ever kept your soul amongst the living after a life-threatening event? Could have been a health scare. Or maybe it was at one time you got your driver's license as a teenager and you were driving recklessly and if the Lord hadn't intervened, mm, you would have made a mess. Or maybe it was when someone else's reckless driving nearly killed you had the Lord not intervened. Or has there ever been a time when, in your life when the Lord protected you from giving in to temptation? Notice he, he says, he has not let our feet slip. I think that's a, a, a word picture for falling or stumbling, maybe into sin. 
So has there ever been a time when the Lord protected you, strengthened you from giving in to temptation? Where you were about to slip, you were about to do something stupid, but the Lord showed up and you went, Whew. Well, the psalmist says, you got another reason to praise the Lord then. So what's interesting as we look at the whole of counsel of God's word is that the angels, the shepherds that are in the Christmas story, and all the earth celebrated Jesus' birth with enthusiastic singing, and so should we. So Jesus' birth invites believers to sing in celebration. Well, what else does O Come All Ye Faithful tell us about the Christmas story? Here's the third truth. Number three in your outline, Jesus' birth invites believers to wonder at the incarnation. To wonder at the incarnation. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Now in flesh appearing. It's a reference to the incarnation. Incarnation is a word that theologians use to describe God becoming a man in the form of Jesus Christ. It, it comes from the Latin phrase incarnate, which literally means in the flesh. This is what John Wade was referring to when he wrote that lyric, now in flesh appearing. Although God becoming a man should leave us in awe, I get the sense that many believers today have heard it so many, they've heard about it in so many Christmas sermons, and they've sung about it in so many Christmas songs, and they've, they've read the Christmas books that, yeah, the incarnation, yeah, yeah, it's just, okay, yeah, I've heard about that. It's kind of indifferent to it. One reason or one theory I have why I think this is happening with today's believer is that I think today's believer doesn't know why it's a big deal that God was incarnate. And so I asked myself this week, why is it a big deal? Why is it a big deal that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Well, there are many reasons why this needed to happen, but here's one for us to consider today. If you would turn to me, turn with me, excuse me, to Exodus chapter 33. So our last passage we're going to look up, Exodus chapter 33. Now let me give you some context here in Exodus 33. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Oh, it fascinates me what happens here. So Moses is having a bad day. He's called by God to lead God's people, the enslaved Hebrews, out of Egypt. Moses reluctantly agrees to do it, although he felt he wasn't qualified for the job. We pick up the story in chapter 33, and when we do, the Israelites have escaped from Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. They're crossing through the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. But unfortunately, God's people weren't behaving. They made a golden calf a couple chapters earlier. Um, they're grumbling, and Moses has had enough. Moses is fed up. And so, just for the sake of time, I'll paraphrase uh, Exodus 33, verses 12 to 16. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Basically, he says to God, you know, these are your people. Not mine. 
And you told me, you told me, God, to bring them up out of Egypt, and I agreed to. Even though I didn't want to. I tried to tell you this wasn't going well. But here we are. Things are worse now than they were back in Egypt, God. And I can't go any further until I know that you are with me and that I have your favor. So that's what he says to God. And if you don't believe me, you can read it later. Verses 12 to 16. Now, the Lord, sensing Moses' discouragement and frustration, agrees to give him a sign of encouragement. And so we pick up the story in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, Moses, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses got to do something that only one other person in the scripture that I can think of got to do. He got to see God with his own eyes. However, however, even someone as godly as Moses was only allowed to catch a glimpse of God's backside while hiding behind a rock. Did you catch that? Or else Moses would have died. Well, why? why? Why is that? Because when sinful man encounters the holiness of God, man returns to the dust that he was made of. Or made from, excuse me. Or, for those of you that like Hollywood movies, the glory of God is like that scene in the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark in which uh, everyone that looks at the Ark of the Covenant when it's opened is incinerated. Or, or, the glory of God is, it's like the shock wave from a nuclear explosion that turns anyone to dust that's nearby, ground zero. It, it, the glory of God is what made Isaiah the prophet say in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me! And he fell on his face when he saw the Lord. He got a glimpse of heaven, he saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up. So, so, why is the incarnation a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because for the Hebrews, seeing God or being in God's presence, they had such a fear of God's holiness. They took him so seriously. There was a, there was a heaviness, a weightiness to God that sadly, I think we've lost here in the 21st century. 
So, so the incarnation is a big deal because for the first time since the fall in Genesis 3, it allowed man to see God without instantly dying. Or another way I would put it is this, the incarnation is deity putting on humanity so humanity can get close to deity without getting killed. That's why it's a big deal. So how do we apply these truths that we've learned here today, these three truths? Here's two applications, and for those of you who are visiting, I like to share applications because God, God's word calls us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Jesus said in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, if you love me, then obey my commands. So, so I like to give examples of practical application of, okay, what do we do with the truth that we just heard how do we apply it to our lives? Here's one that comes to mind, and there's two I'm gonna give you. The first is, don't let earthly defeats spoil your eternal triumph. Don't let earthly defeats spoil your eternal triumph. On December 23rd, 1982, just two days before Christmas, one of the greatest upsets in all of sports history took place at a holiday basketball tournament in Honolulu, Hawaii. The unranked Chaminade Silver Swords were scheduled to play the number one ranked University of Virginia Cavaliers. Chaminade was a Division II Catholic school from Honolulu that had an enrollment of just 900 students. In fact, Chaminade was such a small school, they didn't even have their own campus. They shared a campus with a local high school. Their coach worked part-time as a coach and full-time as a junior high, high uh, counselor at another school. And the tallest player on Chaminade's basketball team was six foot six, their center. Now, the University of Virginia, on the other hand, uh, was an undefeated national powerhouse led by seven foot four, two time player of the year, Ralph Sampson. Chaminade had lost to another unknown small school called Wayland Baptist just two days prior to this game. Virginia, on the other hand, had beaten fellow powerhouses, Georgetown and Duke, earlier in the month. But that didn't matter. Chaminade went into the game and they upset the number one ranked Virginia Cavalier, 77-72, in what many have dubbed the greatest upset in college basketball history. Interestingly, it happened in the wee hours of the morning on December 23rd, because it was Hawaii time, and so the, the mainland states didn't hear about it until like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and by that point, the news cycle had already turned over, the game wasn't even televised. There were only a few hundred people at the game, and uh, you know, back then in 1982, you didn't have internet, so um, it kind of just, just got forgotten. Also, here's a, what else is interesting. 
just in the weeks before the game was played, leading up to the game, Chaminade was in the process of changing its name to something easier to remember and pronounce. They wanted to be called, and they were in the works of changing and rebranding the school, they wanted to be called the University of Honolulu. However, after its basketball team beat the best team in the country, they decided not to change their suddenly famous school name, and who could blame them? Because the students had t-shirts made after that huge upset, and the t-shirts read, Yes, Virginia, there is a Chaminade. <laughs> now, why am I telling you this story? Well, because more than 35 years after this historic game, the program is still celebrating that triumph. And sports media is still talking about it. I found, inter I, I, I was researching this last night on, on the internet, there are articles written by you know, Bleacher Report and Sports Illustrated and CBS Sports over the last 10 years that are still talking about it. In going back and finding the players, you know, 35 years later and interviewing them and finding out all the backstory behind the scenes stuff. Chaminade in the media don't talk about the many games they lost that year and the few that they won. Instead, they still talk about the biggest game they won in 1982 over the undefeated number one ranked team in the country. They're still talking about it. Did you know that until Jesus came along, death was undefeated and the number one ranked opponent that every human had to face? However, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you won't be commemorating your many losses and the few victories you've had in your life when you die. Instead, you'll be celebrating your greatest triumph. The fact that Jesus picked you to be on his team. He defeated the previously undefeated number one ranked opponent of death. And then he lets you celebrate that with him. O come all ye faithful, reminds believers of this encouraging truth. Joyful and triumphant. Triumphant over what? Death, sin, and Satan. Here's a second application that comes to mind. The Holy Spirit may give you another one, but these are just two that I thought of as I prayed and worked through this message this week. Uh, the second application is uh, sing the truth in worship songs and carols regardless of how you feel. And I'm sorry, I couldn't make that shorter. I tried my hardest to get it down to a few words. But sing the truth in worship songs and carols regardless of how you feel. Most professing Christians, it's been my experience, only worship the Lord when they feel like it. And then they withhold worship from the Lord when they don't. This is not what the scriptures teach or what they call believers to do. Contrary to popular belief, worshiping the Lord when you don't feel like it will actually make you feel like it. In other words, there, there will be times when you just need to worship the Lord out of duty and trust that the delighting in him will come back later. You do this by choosing to set your emotions aside 
so that you can, by faith, sing truth that's still true, regardless of how you feel. See, just because you don't feel like worshiping the Lord doesn't mean the truth in the songs is no longer true. Nothing changed in the songs. The only thing that changes is your feelings. And they're going to always change. Gradually, your soul will start to feel like singing as it hears the truth that you're singing. I've had to learn this in the last few years. And I, I can testify this is true. It happens. Now, if that sounds too wordy, here's another way I could say it. You will reach a new level of spiritual maturity that few reach when you can lead your emotions instead of letting them lead you. So sing the truth in worship songs and carols regardless of how you feel. Well, on the morning of October 23rd, 1983, a dump truck crashed through the front gates of the U.S. Marine Barracks in Beirut, Lebanon. Some of you may remember that tragic news story in the headlines it made. I remember it. I was uh, a young lad at the time. The driver and the 12,000 pounds of explosives that he was hauling destroyed a four-story building that housed our U.S. Marines. 241. Marines were killed that day. They were there as part of a multinational peacekeeping force. A few days later after the attack, Marine Corps Commandant Paul Kelly went to the hospital to visit some of the wounded. Among those that he visited was a soldier so severely wounded that he could not speak because he had tubes in his nose and going down his throat and all that stuff. Despite this, the young man was determined to communicate something to his commandant. So the peacekeeper motioned for someone to hand him a pen and paper, and he scribbled a couple words, just two words down. And then he handed the note to the commandant. They were the words Semper Fi. The Latin motto that the Marine Corps has used since 1883 that means in Latin, forever faithful. O come all ye faithful is a carol of invitation. It invites us to sing, to adore, and to remain faithful to the one who is always faithful to us. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that in this room or perhaps listening online, there may be some that are struggling to believe that you're faithful. They may be struggling with disappointment because it appears as though you've let them down, as though you've been unfaithful. And Father, I just wanna ask that you would please minister to them, speak to them, Show them, Lord, if there's any responsibility that they need to own 
for their current circumstances. Show them, Lord, if maybe they're blaming you for things that are really their fault. Show them, Lord, if maybe it's just you haven't come through yet because you're doing something greater than what they can see. But Father, please would you just encourage them and remind them that you're at work even when they don't see it and that you're faithful. Lord, I also want to pray for those who are struggling to be faithful, maybe because they're discouraged, maybe because their hearts are hardened, maybe because they've wandered away from you. And so they're struggling and to remain faithful to you. Lord, please would you do whatever's necessary to get them back in good standing with you, to, get, to, to woo them back to yourself. Would you show them, Lord, that being unfaithful to you never pays off. It's never worth it. And Lord, for those who, who don't feel like singing this Christmas, because maybe, maybe Christmas time is a, it's a season of loss. Maybe they lost a loved one this year or in years past, and so the Christmas season reminds them of that loss. Or, or maybe they're going through a very difficult season right now this Christmas. Father, please, would you help them by your grace, by your spirit, to sing even when they don't feel like it because their soul needs to hear them sing. Father, thank you for men like John Wade who loved you so much and we're so excited about the Christmas story that they, they penned these great songs and put truth in them so that we would remember and never forget how important it is to celebrate Christmas so that we would never forget the true meaning of Christmas. Lord, please would you help us to, to emulate the joy and enthusiasm that John Wade had as we close in worship and as we continue through the rest of this season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.